Hey, everybody, and welcome back to the Core Leadership Podcast, a voice to college men at the crossroads of faith and campus life. Today's episode is particularly exciting because we have one of Beta Upsilon Chi's founding fathers from the University of Texas. That's right, our alpha chapter. So founding fathers of the fraternity, David Daniels. This episode's a little bit longer than we typically run, so just be prepared, but it's definitely worth the ride. So buckle up and get ready. Here's your host, Gabe McKinney. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Core Leadership Podcast. Today, I have an incredible guest with me. Actually, the first time we tried to record a podcast, a storm hit, and we just went totally out on energy. Shout out to all the Texans who know about energy issues. But we were unable to finish, and so we have him back and man, he just has helped build this fraternity, even start it. He's building and leading a church. And so I want to introduce David Daniels, someone who really special leader for my life and a lot of men's life. He's spoken at a couple core leadership retreats. He's known as the guy on Saturday who goes for like three or four hours and guys are like, this is incredible and it's not long enough. I wish it was longer. So David, I'd love for you to say, hey, how are you doing? Hey, it is great to be with you. And I'm sorry that we had to cut our last recording short. I've been hanging on the end of the last sentence that we had, just hoping we just pick up. But uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to spend a little time with you and the guys today. Here we go. The secret tapes. We're just going to start right where we left. Off. <laughs> That's um, right. Well, we have a lot to talk about. I think, Daniels, you have a unique perspective on church, on finances, on the word, on so many great things. But let's start with your story. Take me back into your shoes as a college guy. And basically, like, can we do a flyover from there into how you got into pastor where you are now? Yeah. Of, and even maybe like, where are you right now? And then we can go back. Yeah. You know, uh, you know, one of the things I'll say is that that God brought bucks into my life. Of course, it was the start of bucks, but he brought bucks into my life at just the right time. I, I had come to know Jesus um, a month before I graduated from high school, uh, grew up religious, but really didn't know the Lord placed my faith in Christ. God began to radically change my life. For the first year and a half, I attended UT Arlington and then transferred down to UT. And it was during that semester, the spring of 1985, when I transferred in, that some guys birthed bucks. And I got to be a part of that startup of the fraternity. And so here I am, a young Christian. I, I don't know, you know, I don't know my genesis from my revelation. I'm still trying to figure things out. And it was just so providential of God to put me in the in the context of a community of men that I could do life with and really grow up from being an infant, you know, Christian to starting to starting to understand Christian leadership and, and accountability and biblical community and all those things. So so Bucks was really, really formative for me, not just as a Christian young man, but really just as a Christian. What does this spiritual life really look like? I graduated from UT with a degree in graphic design and advertising and really believed that that was the course that God had marked out for me in my life. I mean, I had kind of sensed that from the time I was in high school. I was kind of like a lot of my friends, for I know the plans that I have for me declares myself plans to prosper me. You know, I mean, I just had this, I had this vision. And one day I was sitting at my office working on a four color magazine doing what I love to do and what I felt like I was good at doing, and, and the Lord called me. I mean, it was a distinct calling. God spoke to me, not audibly, but he spoke to me at my desk and, and asked me this question, is this what you're going to be doing when you're old? 
And I thought, what a crazy question. God, it's what I know how to do. It's what I've been preparing to do. It's what I've been trained to do. It's what I like to do. It's what I, you know, and uh, the Lord, the Lord just impressed on me. I have a different course. I have a course planned out for you. I'd been volunteering at my local church and student ministry and, and the Lord just turned the course of my life around. I went to seminary, got a degree and, and uh, a master's degree for, to, to prepare me for ministry, and then came back to Austin and began serving in the local church as, at first as a youth pastor, and then I quickly transitioned over to college ministry. And that's where I spent the next 11 years leading college students on the UT campus. And man, I, I believed I was living the dream. I mean, it really was. It was an amazing season for me. The great thing about it is able to come back to UT and connect with Bucks, but now kind of as you know, alumni, working with campus organizations. And, and, uh, and since then, the Lord led me from Austin to Minnesota, where I served as a lead pastor of a church in Minnesota for a couple of years, and then brought me back to the DFW area where I've been serving at Central Bible Church for the last 15 years. So that's just kind of the big picture, kind of how the Lord's been leading me. Yeah, that's a couple highlights. One, guys listening, this is probably a guy, if you're taking a Bucks test, you're having to memorize his name as a, a Bucks founder uh, back in Austin, 1985, started Bucks. Also want to highlight that moment where, that calling moment. I think, Daniels, a lot of guys can relate that they, a lot of our college guys are struggling to say, do I choose full-time ministry? Do I want to be a pastor? Do I want to go into work? What if what I'm pursuing, what if what I'm pursuing doesn't feel like the thing I'm supposed to go for? So I don't know if even just take one second to expand a little more how difficult that was to make that turn and transition. Yeah. You know, I, I was having a, I was having a conversation with a fella uh, a couple of weeks ago and he's kind of at that, that place, full-time ministry. Okay. And this is what I would say. It's not really full-time ministry or secular work. It's vocational ministry versus workplace ministry. I think all of us as people of God, as, as, as men of God, ought to be looking through the lens of how best do I magnify God wherever I am, whether that means I'm a doctor, an attorney, a teacher, a college professor, or a pastor. And I remember when I was serving in college ministry and I would, I, I had some mentors around me and one of those mentors said, let me tell you what I tell students. If you can do anything else serving the Lord than full-time vocational ministry, do it, do it. And you'd think that a guy in my position would be trying to woo guys to full-time vocational ministry, but actually it's the opposite because if you work as an accountant at Schlotsky's home headquarters, you have a kind of impact and inroads into people's lives that I, as a full-time vocational minister, will never have. I will never have the kind of platform that you have. And what we need, quite frankly, are not more pastors and Bible teachers and churches. There's plenty of those. What we need is men who, who lace up their shoes and show up to Dell Computers or Schlotsky's or a Chick-fil-A franchise or as doctors 
and who love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength and seek to glorify him in the workplace. I think sometimes as Christians, we think, oh, those that do full-time ministry, God's really proud of them. And then the rest, he's kind of just kind of putting up with you guys and hoping you might find, you know, you might catch a fish on the line every once in a while. No, 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 no. I fully believe that those that are serving Christ in the workplace have unbelievable opportunity that I don't have. Yeah, I think that's really helpful to hear. And for guys to stop distinct, like I remember a moment in a Bucks chapter where I saw the whole Bucks chapter said, everyone who's working at a camp or a ministry this summer, stand up, we're going to pray for you. They prayed for yeah. me, they sat down. And then there was no mention of any guy who was going to go work in the workplace. Wow. And it was just like, yeah. Yeah. I was like, why aren't we blessing and praying over the men who are going to go live out the calling the way of Jesus in a non-Christian like, setting, you know, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, yeah, And I realized at that moment, man, there may be, we are not seeing the weightiness of, of the livable gospel and livable Jesus in a lot of places we can take it. Life is not meant to, man, I'm going to outsource Jesus now because my life's too busy because I, I manage a Chick-fil-A. It's like, hey, we got to find yeah. ways to like welcome that in to the cracks and crevices well, of life. Completely agree. And I would say one of the things that COVID is teaching those of us that do church ministry is that there's been this slow decline over the last 10 to 20 years, and COVID has accelerated it. The church can no longer be viewed as a come and see experience. You know, a lot of times when we think about those that are on the margins of Christ or those that don't know Jesus, we think, oh, if only I could get those people to my church. But that's, it's, it's not going to work like that anymore. It more, and it hasn't worked like that for a long time, but COVID has even done this more. People are not, church as a location and a facility, as a come to experience, is never going to be like that again. So, what we need is to see the church unleashed into the workplace, into the ball field, on the sports court, you know, with your kids. That the church out mobilized into neighborhoods and communities is really where the church is going to have impact. Well, how does a guy like me, who is a full-time pastor, how do I do that? Well, the best thing I can do is train a thousand people a week to go be Christ in their classrooms and in their offices and that sort of thing. You know, most of the guys live and listening to this podcast, those that are not in vocational ministry they have unbelievable opportunity, and we should be praying over those guys as missionaries. I wish every guy would see themselves as a missional disciple sent from Christ into wherever they are to have an incredible impact for Christ. Well, since you just pushed away all your recruits, all the guys who are like, you know, maybe I'll go into it, and you're like, hey, stay away, go do something different. <laughs> uh, what, what would you say to the guys who are planning on or feel called to full-time ministry? You've been in it for a while you know, you've jumped yeah. around from youth to college to now lead. Just any thoughts that immediately come to mind that you want to give as words of encouragement or just yeah. be, be aware of this or, hey, hold on to this sure. truth as you walk through into vocational yeah. ministry. Well, I think there's and that's a great question. I, I There are two kinds of guys that answer the call into vocational ministry. The second kind of guy is the guy that because he can do anything else and doesn't have motivation to actually put in a hard day's work at his office or whatever. He grows disillusioned with his day job and he comes to the conclusion, well, maybe I'll go do ministry because he thinks, A, it's going to be easier 
All right. He watches youth pastors just kind of hanging around in their T-shirts and, they, and he thinks ministry is going to be easier. And nobody thinks this consciously, but I think it goes into their soul. If I go into ministry, I will already be respected as doing something that's noble and nobody will tell me I'm bad at it. And so I think there are some guys that fall into ministry because they lack ambition, initiative, and what they're looking for is to find something in life that that other people are just going to automatically say, wow, you're an amazing person because you're in ministry. That would not be the person that should go into ministry. They even say, I feel like God's calling me. Don't do it. But for the person for the person that God is genuinely calling you, and a lot of times that call is he's ripping you away from something. It's what, what it was for me, ripping you away from something that you're really good at and you really want to do. That's when you know it's calling. And I think that calling has two dimensions. It has a subjective dimension and an objective dimension. The subjective dimension is that burning in your soul. God, you know, I can't quantify it. I'm just feeling compelled. I'm hearing the voice of the Lord in my head, but I but I can't I can't quantify this and write it down on a piece of paper. It just is. It's that it's that movement. It's that thing that we often refer to as calling. But I think that if we only have that gut feeling in our head and we don't have any objective criteria, any objective supports that really point to it and confirm it, we could be heading off into a place that might just be our our own gut feeling. Maybe that's really not the Lord. So what are the objective criteria that can support the subjective feeling that I feel in my gut that God's calling me into to be a missionary? And I think there's several things that we could look to. Number one, what do the counsel of my closest friends say? Those those accountability partners, those people I'm closest to, would they confirm that in me? Secondly, does it match up with my gifts? I believe that God will always call us to a place that aligns with our gifts. Thirdly, have I experienced any success in this particular area? Now, this is not always a criteria because God called Moses, and Moses wasn't a great speaker, and yet God still used him. But if God's calling you to be an evangelist, and you've never shared the gospel with anybody, or the two people you shared a gospel with, you hit a dead end, you might step back and go, okay, is it is it is he calling me to be an evangelist or is he calling me to a ministry that supports evangelism? I, I got to, because I, I would have expected to see a little bit of success along the way. And then I think the fourth criteria is, does it match up with God's word? And, that, and, and then one more, one more criteria. Are there providential things happening in my life that I could not have orchestrated that are steering me to this calling? I get an unexpected call from somebody. I start receiving out of the blue seminary applications and catalogs. I'm going, where did this come from? I mean, what, what are the providential things of life that tend to point to that? And when those objective things begin to line up and begin to point to the subjective feeling in my heart, I think I can at that point go, wow, the Lord's really in this. I, I think he's calling me to this. That's a long answer, but I think there's things, subjective and objective, come together. No way. That's great. I don't know if a lot of guys have any sort of framework of how to make decisions that take them into a workplace or, or full-time vocational ministry. I think 
Yeah, guys, go look. Guys should go listen back and listen through. What are some ways that I can build a framework or build some checks into? I feel like God. I feel like God's speaking to me. But then, how can we take that and actually put that against truth? Put that against and what I heard you say, yeah. counsel. We need to be living with people who know us so that they can actually speak into us who we are and our truth. And that is just a huge highlight of community and being connected to people and decision making too. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the thing about good community, good community doesn't tell you what you want to hear. Good community will tell you what you need to hear. You know, what is the proverb that says faithful are the wounds of a friend? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. All of us need people around us who will tell us the painful truth. We need people close enough to us that we trust them to wound us. And, and I think what that means is, we need people close enough to us that when we say, hey, listen, I'm thinking about leaving my job and going into ministry and I, I want to be I want to be a counselor, blah, 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 blah. So we need somebody close enough to us and that'll say, whoa, 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 time out just a minute. What? Well, I think God's calling me to be a counselor. Okay. I love you enough to tell you, you are not a counselor. You're the least empathetic person I have ever met in my life. Do not do it. I mean, that would be painful, but man, that would, that's how, you know, you got a close friend that'll tell you the truth. Expose them. Daniel's Daniels is exposing his friends for in love and in truth and grace. (laughs) That's right. Um, Yeah. I think a main takeaway and thought for just people listening is, man, we're all meant to just walk in the way of Jesus, regardless of where you find yourself. Like, hey, let's learn how to bring him into our space, bring him into our lives. Let's learn to pastor and minister to one another. Let's learn to love the people. We love the people and the stranger and the people who seem so far outside of the family of God. So I think that's just a huge takeaway too to guys. Guys, everywhere you're going and launching, like God is going with you. You're not ever going alone. That's Um, right. And so I'd love to, so you're now a head pastor of a local church pretty awesome. We got to actually be there as a staff and do some work in one of the offices, which was great. Thanks for that. And I'd love to hear what is maybe leadership and going through your schedule and working with purpose look like. I hear a lot of college guys who are like, my life is so busy and I'm busy and I'm, I'm doing this action and this activity over here. And I'm doing, they're like, I always tell them they're like an octopus on skates. There's a lot of action, but there's not a lot of movement. And I feel like what we know about a, a head pastor at a local church, we know, well, he works one day of the week, and then he's invisible the next six days of the week. Uh, he speaks, but we don't. So I'd just be curious to hear what does his leadership look like in your life as a head pastor? How, how has it looked to not be ruled by your schedule, but to walk with your schedule in a way that's like listening to the spirit and serving and, yeah. and built by priority? Yeah. That's a great question. You know, I would say to college college guys right now, and they're, they're going to hate me for saying this. They're going to turn the podcast off right after they hear this. But here's the truth. Men, you have more discretionary time in your life right now than you will ever have for the rest of your life. That's reality. I don't, you know, I don't care what year you are in college. You have more discretionary time right now. So whatever habits that you don't feel like you can form right now as a college student, you likely won't form those habits very well out of college. Now, some people will, but most people won't. If you can't, if, if I can't find time to be disciplined in God's word in college, I'm going to really have a hard time being disciplined in God's word out of college. We think that the moment we graduate, suddenly the vistas are going to open up and we're just going to have all this clear schedule, but it really it doesn't work out like that. You know, I was grateful to have some mentors in my life in college that 
push me kicking and screaming into some time management and into some disciplines so that I would have a better chance of carrying those disciplines when I got out of college. And, and for me, I'm, you know, I'm a very type type A person. So I'm a very, I'm an you know, organized person and I'm fortunate for the last 15 years to be in a church that has a unique paradigm of ministry that actually frees me up to do the things that are the most important things for a lead pastor to do. So I spend, uh, my time is divided uh, in, a, in a variety of ways. Number one, I get up about six o'clock every day. I'm in the office by about 6.40 or so, and I spend time in God's word. And I deliberately spend time in God's word away from where I'm preaching so that it's more devotional for my soul and not always looking at the Bible of how will this preach to my my congregation in a couple of weeks. So I spend time in God's word and prayer. And then um, uh, my days, Monday through Thursday, are spent either studying God's word and preparing a message. I have two or three messages that are always on my desk that I'm constantly going through at a time. I spend my time in meetings. Some people think about vocational ministry as this big Starbucks-a-thon. We're just going to get to sit across the table and drink coffee and hang out with people all the time. But that's not the case of anybody in ministry. Starbucks-a-thon uh, Star- is a great new word for me. That's awesome. You got it. There you go. Yeah, there it is, man. And, and you know, here's the thing. I, I, I have to sit in planning meetings. I have to work on budgets. I have to meet with my elders you know, so there are just some administrivia. I got to answer emails. I've got to put together proposals. Uh, I got to be on phone calls. Those are just the typical things that are that are true of, of my work week. And then I have kind of relational time. And that relational time, my first commitment in my church is to my staff. I figure if I invest in my staff and they invest in other people, then I extend my ministry to my congregation through the investment on my staff. And so those those are the people I spend a great deal of time with. And then uh, I also spend time with people outside of my staff and elders, people in my church that need some extra time. They just need a face-to-face conversation with people. So the Word, spending time in the Word, planning the Word, spending time in meetings and administration that keeps the wheels of the church going, and then spending time with people, discipling people or encouraging staff. Those are those are really the three major buckets of my time. Yeah, you're probably not too busy, I'm sure. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and you're managing just a local church in a in a pandemic and COVID and yeah. yeah. Just shout out to you, Daniels, for probably doing just so much, laying your life down and having to do so many things that people don't even know that pastors get asked to do. The unknown vocation that people don't see so much of what you do. Um, well, thank, thanks for that. I appreciate it. I, you know, I'm, I'm privileged. And part of this is because of what my church does. So every guy that's listening that's in a church, you know, this is for you to, 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 to speak upstream to your to your pastors on staff. I'm fortunate to have an amazing staff. They are so incredibly capable and gifted, and they do things a whole lot better than I do. So I get to work on a team that's incredible. But I also have a church that is amazingly supportive. I suppose all the non-supportive people have already left and gone to other churches, but the the, the handful that remain are incredibly supportive people in my congregation. And so 
I've, especially during the pandemic, I've seen us being able to move together as a church, as opposed to me feeling like I'm pushing a rock uphill, working against people. And so for everybody that's in a church, being able to say to your pastor, hey, you can count on me. I'm for you. I'm praying for you. How can I serve you? Man, that is that is music to a pastor's ears. Yeah, let's go to to that kind of topic of college men and their relationship to the local church. As you know, I think a lot of our guys, they are committed in a lot of places, but the local church kind of gets the leftover or it just gets my Sunday attendance. And now that there's not even like always a Sunday attendance assurance, like that could be virtual, the local church probably gets not a lot of my time at all. I, I remember myself being a little transient throughout college and jumping here and there and being in a Bible study and being in a life group. And so just helping give some framework and some, how can we better value this? What are misconceptions we have? Just speak into that, Daniels, for all of yeah. our guys. You know, we, we could spend, we could spend, a, you know, multiple podcasts talking about the significance of the local church and the connection of God's people, to the local church. I think I'd start off by just saying this to, to the guys, God's heart, his primary heart is for the local church and, and period. Full stop. His heart is full, is for the local church. Now, here are some misconceptions we have. One misconception we have is, well, parachurch is equal to church. Parachurch could be a local refugee ministry. It could be the college ministry. I mean, it could be Bucks. It could be any number of that, Compassion International, any of these other ministries. They say it's synonymous with the local church. And I will tell you, no, it's not. Another misconception, I'll get back to that. Another misconception we have is since it's, you know, when we talk about church, we talk about big C, where all of God's people are. And since some of God's people are in Compassion International or Bucks or or Crew or something like that, well, then that's all the church. And so we're all good. And I would say that's correct that we are all big C, the people of God, you can't equate what's going on in crew with what's going on in the local church. And, 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 and so just track with me here for just a minute. This is, this is the reason why. It's the difference between, um, uh, there's some technical terminology for this, but the, but, but the main difference is that a parachurch organization is designed to be a specialist. The local church is intended to be a generalist, okay? So the benefit of a, of a parachurch organization, whether, let's just use Bucks, what is the main heartbeat of Bucks? And I'm, I'm gonna challenge you, I'm gonna challenge you on this, Gig. Is the main focus of Bucks evangelism? I would say no. No, it's not. And unapologetically so. It's not, it's not evangelism. Is the main focus of Bucks feeding the poor? No. <laughs> no. I mean, I mean, and all of the officers of local Bucks as they're listening to this going, no, no, it's it's fellowship, it's biblical community and the strength of college men coming together, supporting one another and encouraging one another to be God's best. I mean, that's you know, might be a dozen different ways we could say that. So Bucks, by its design, does not fulfill all of the functions that are commanded for the local church. And uh, the reason that parachurch organizations, you know, you know, 
a century ago were designed is because the local church wasn't fulfilling all of its mission. The local church was becoming too inward and wasn't doing evangelism, wasn't succeeding in mission, wasn't caring for the poor. There were a variety of reasons. And so these local, these parachurch, para meaning with, these with the church organizations begin to spring up and begin to be begin to fill in the gaps where the local church was not succeeding. But Jesus has commanded his church as an organization to do what? To worship, to preach the word, to evangelize the lost, to go to the nations, take the gospel to the nations, to care for the poor, all of these variety of, of things that are the responsibility of a local church. And the parachurch ministry is a phenomenal, a godsend support to the local church. But the parachurch ministry is a specialist. They focus narrowly on a couple of things, but they don't focus broadly on the, the entire thing. So if a guy considers Bucks as his church, and I know as an organization, we don't, we don't encourage that. We move guys to the local church. If a guy says, Bucks is my church, think of all of what he's missing in the mandate of Jesus. He is missing the mandate to evangelize. He is missing the mandate to care for the poor. He's missing the fullness of what God has charged the church to do. So they're not the same. They're not the same. And there will be a lack of sustainability because there will no longer be a Bucks chapter meeting. You will no longer have a cell group when you're graduated. You will have a local church that's not just a bunch of college guys that are really easy to get along with. You have parents, you have children, you have women, <laughs> and there's this <laughs> multi-generation, right. multi-vocational, yeah. and, and I feel like guys don't see, yeah, uh, Bucks is a, like you said, it's a bridesmaid to the bride. It's a part of the church. It's the college-aged male part of the church, Big C, but it is not the entire picture, and we will not live out every command, like you said. Like, hey, we yeah. may, maybe you go... Maybe you will evangelize with a couple of your guys and bucks, but, but we're not going to push evangelism. I think what we do, we're that's, gonna, that's right. Yeah, yeah. It's not. It's a difference between what bucks may do versus what bucks is designed to do. Yeah. You know, yeah. bucks. You know, bucks has a philanthropy. You know, angle and guys support clean water or something like that. They're and then they're supporting a missionary. They do any number of things. Praise the Lord for that. But that's really not the focus. Unapologetically so. That's not the focus of the organization. And in the same way, the focus of Campus Crusade, of crew, the focus of crew is not uh, social service and meeting the needs of the poor. So, and, and, I, and you hit on something I think is really, really important. You know, when I was a college pastor, I'd hear college students say they would graduate, they would move away, and then I would get a letter back and they'd say, Pastor, I'm just, you know, I'm living in Minneapolis and I'm just having a hard time finding a church that was exactly like our ministry was called Echo, that was just like Echo. And I said, there's a reason for that, because you're no longer a college student and because you're now part of the church. And we may have actually done you a disservice by baiting you with something that was so unbelievable. And when you get out, you discover that the church is not this homogeneous group of college men, 18 to 22, just men, you know, this narrow group. The church is much broader and it's more diver beautifully diverse than that. And you're going to have to get used to a 
different kind of experience now. I think that's true for every college guy. Yeah, and I needed to hear this. Being humble enough to walk into like a space and know that it's not just catered directly to me and know yeah. that I'm going to have to maybe work a little harder to serve and connect and maybe like it's not always going to be this college tailored life sermon like a Tuesday night gathering on a college campus and not that all that's, that's right yeah. that's right not that all that stuff is bad yeah, I mean, I'm I I'm, I'm uh sorry Daniel it's not that all that stuff's bad I'm hoping that the Stephen <laughs> Bucks and the parachurch is preparing us to be men and women and people who know how to operate in all spheres of life for for Jesus and his kingdom yeah I mean, the minute that you and I walk into a church, we move we move out of our home state and we go across the United States. We, we arrive in North Carolina and we get an apartment. We start our job and we find a local church. When you and I walk in the doors of that church, we have to ask the question. We have to ask the question whether we've come to be served or to serve. I mean, that's Mark 10. That's, in fact, the whole gospel of Mark crescendos in that statement, Mark 10, 45. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so we have to ask the question, am I here to be a thermometer or a thermostat? Am I here just to tell everybody what the temperature is, or am I here to change the temperature? Am I here to be a consumer or a catalyst? And I can tell you, that inside of me is this default to be a consumer, default to be a thermometer, default to say, I'm going to look to find out what's going to fit my needs here, as opposed to saying, here I am, I bring in a bag of spiritual gifts, the Holy Spirit in me, an experience I had at college, and I am here to make a difference. Put me in, coach. Where do I serve? And I want to say to our college guys, just a vision for Bucks nationally is my hope is that college men will just, even if it's for a couple of semesters or even if it's not perfectly all four years, that you'll just practice being a part of the local church and serving. You'll practice being a part of a community group. You'll practice holding a door open, serving communion. Just practice being in the presence of a local church. And, and even if it's not perfect, even if it's not all four years, uh, I mean, ideally, right, we've, we've practiced commitment in that so that when you end up in, a, in an adult world with less Bucks-centric activity and college activity in your life, this isn't the first time you've tried that. You're like, hey, I've at least tried a little bit. And yeah, you can just feel a little more familiar with that. This is the full body of Christ. There's a beautiful diversity here and God's working here and I don't have to be scared of it. I can embrace it. Yeah. And all of God's pastors said, amen. I mean, really, <laughs> that's, that's so, I mean, it's just so, so important. And I will say that guys that are in college, college students bring unbelievable life to a church just because of their age, because of their passion, because of their availability, because of their ideas. Put a college student in a church, and that church is a better church. Put a 25-year-old in a local church, and it's a better church. I would say to the guys listening that they, they by nature of their age and their vision and their passion and their time, they have what their local church needs. And if they'll go in thinking that, they're going to be ready to be a blessing to any church they land in. I know, Dan, as you could probably go 12 rounds and overtime <laughs> on local church vision. <laughs> um, I'd love to talk about a couple more things. One of the things you mentioned was yeah. handling the word of God that you are, I mean, you, you swim in it. You live in that, like, I'm sure you're always fighting. Hey, I want to give, I need to give more truth than I give advice. Like I'm teaching the word I'm carrying, I'm translating it to my people so they can live it out and walk it out. So just, 
help college men who maybe even at this point, some guys I know on their journey are just learning how to handle it well and actually read it for themselves because most of their faith's inherited from their family. Some guys are maybe just tightly gripping it like way too much and using it in a way that's not actually loving, but they're just like taking yeah. so, so help speak to ways that college guys can better handle the word, approach it. Um, yeah, ways that you've even handled it that can help them navigate that yeah. space. Well, thank you for that. Cause I, th- I think it's, it's such a huge, it's such a huge topic. You know, we are, we are fairly biblically illiterate people. If you rewind the tapes of the church 50 years, it was far more likely that people could distinguish their Jonah from their Jeremiah. If you said to somebody today in a small group, turn to Second Hesitations chapter 2, half the people would spend would would spend the next 10 minutes trying to find it in their Bible. They it just biblical illiteracy is unfortunately on the rise. So so I would say two verses have been a lot of verses, but two verses in particular that I learned very early on in my spiritual life have directed me. The first one is Jeremiah 15, 16. And in fact, this verse was the very first verse that my Bible study leader in college required us to learn. I don't have any idea why he chose this verse, but Jeremiah 15, 16 says, thy words, and since there's a thy, I probably memorized in the King James Version, I'm guessing, but it says, thy words were found and I ate them. And your words became for me the joy and delight of my heart. I love that. God, I found your words and I devoured them. I feasted on them. They were food and life for me. And as I ate them, they were so delicious that they became the joy of my life. I mean, gosh, instead of looking at the Bible as just this book to get through, Imagine it if we started looking at it as a book to get through us, and as we as we feasted on the Word of God, it just filled our hearts and transformed us from the inside out. So that was one verse. A second verse, and this is probably more of a verse that I've thought about as a pastor, as a leader of God's Word, is in 2 Timothy uh, 2.15, where Paul says, do your best to present yourself to God, a workman who is unashamed, and who accurately handles the word of truth. And so here, here's what that verse suggests to me. For Paul to command that tells me that I can inaccurately handle the word of God. It is possible for me to open my Bible today, start reading, and misuse it. That's, that's an interesting thing, because I think we think that if I open up God's word, Whatever I get out of it and however I use it is a win. But Paul goes, no, no, not necessarily. You could open it, read it under and quote, misunderstand it in a way that is not at all how God intends it. And as Paul says in that verse, he says, do your best. That means you need to be consciously disciplined and attentive to God's word that when you come to it, you are you are working to make sure you get out of that text what God intended that text to mean. And that's that's hard that's hard work. I don't call it hard work because that may cause people to say I don't want to open my Bible because I don't want hard work. Yeah. But that's a, that's a discipline. That's a discipline. Is there anything maybe practical ways you would talk to guys about how to read scripture in a way that it feels 
like they, you know, the best use of it or, Hey, I'm not just devouring information. I'm actually seeking transformation from this. Good. Yeah. So a couple of things, and, and these are just a couple of, uh, just things that I use with our, our people. When I, when I, when I talk about this couple of things, remember that meaning is not what I bring to the text. Meaning is what the text is intended to mean. Okay. Let me say that again. We can think that meaning is whatever I bring to the text. So if the text says, love your neighbor, and I think that means get involved in children's ministry, I think, well, it doesn't really matter what God intended the text to mean if the meaning I took away from it is good and it's spiritual and it warms my heart and might even draw me closer to the Lord and might cause me to walk by faith, well, then that's a win for the day. That's success, but that's not successful. The meaning of a text is what God intends for the text to mean. My responsibility is to say, God, what do you intend this text to mean? Not what meaning do I take away from it? Because that's that. those are not the same thing. There's a phrase in a little book that I read on preaching that, that really has helped me. And the author of this book said this. He said, whenever you open the Word of God, whenever you open your Bible, you must ask yourself this question, who will be king? Who will be king? Either I'm going to read this text and I'm going to be king over this text. I'm going to tell this text what I like and what it means and what I want to take away from it. I will I will be the master and commander over this text. Or I'm going to come to this text with a humble spirit and I'm going to say, Lord, I want you to be king over me. And so you may tell me something in this text that is totally unexpected. It wasn't even on my mind, it hadn't been on my mind for years, but you're going to tell me something in this text and you're going to tell me how it relates to me. And then I'm going to be required to do something with that. I think that's a different disposition in coming to God's word. What, what do you, let me, I'm going to ask a question to you. I know you're supposed to be the question asker, but how does, how does that sit with you as you hear that? Yeah, I, I've been on a journey. I found myself last semester in the, the fall in a place where when I opened the word and read my Bible and, and journaled, what my natural thought coming out of quiet time was, oh, there's something good here. Who, need, who do I need to go teach this to? So yeah. what, was, what was happening, I was building this really bad rhythm where I wanted to give everything away that God taught me rather than truly receive it myself. And like you said, eat the word, digest it. I thought it was, this is really good for other people, but I got to be busy giving it to them rather than feed myself. And so the past two weeks to a month, every morning I sit down before I read and I have to honestly force myself like a hard stop before I take off sprinting for the day and say, all right, I'm going to, I am meant to read this and actually be changed by it. I'm actually meant to take this into my life and this is meant to move me in some way. And God, you are Lord. And so speak to me. And then I usually will read through a Psalm and pray through a Psalm. And then at the end of my time, whatever amount of time that is, like this morning, for example, I, I broke open a jar of bacon grease everywhere in my kitchen. So it was a little shorter time with Jesus because I was being a custodian for my house. At the end of my time, 
I I have to do this now. I take five, I take three to five minutes and I sit in silence and set a little vibration timer because it's like, even if I don't say anything, it's a reminder that I need to pause to, to let the stuff marinate in me before I bring it to the world and to where I'm going. And so, I mean, Daniels, what you're saying is speaks right to me to say, I am, I am purposefully find myself in the last season of my life trying to be King. And I'm now trying to give kingship back to Jesus so that I walk in that way. Yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, letting God's word work on us that way is so important. I remember I had an experience early in my ministry to college students. We took a mission trip down to Mexico. And I remember, and I don't know why I remember this episode, but it just stood out to me. I was reading through the gospel of Luke. So in the morning, we're at this kind of base camp and we go out during the day and do ministry. And I got up in the morning to have my quote, quiet time. I opened up to Luke chapter whatever, and I read the section and it meant nothing to me. I got squat out of my time. And I'm sure everybody can identify that. You open up God's word and you go, I don't get it. And so I spent a little time in the word, closed my Bible, prayed, got on with ministry that day. The next morning I woke up and where do you think I went to in my Bible to have my quiet time? Well, I went to the next text. And as I opened up the next text and started reading it, the Holy Spirit of God just said to me, well, hold on, time out just a minute, Daniels. That's how you know God's speaking to you because he uses your last name. He goes, he goes, he goes, hold on just a second. Did you understand that previous text? And I said, no. I mean, it, I, it's kind of a weird text. I don't understand why it applies to my life. And God says, well, well, then why don't you just go back and camp out on that text? And I really struggled with the Lord. And here's what I ended up saying. God, how am I going to get through the book of Luke if I have to just linger on a text that I don't understand. And God says, you've misunderstood. You think your goal is to get through the book of Luke. My goal is to get the book of Luke through you. And if, you're, if you linger in that text for the next two weeks and don't go anywhere else, I know it won't feel terribly productive in the world sense, but you're camping out with me my spirit, I'm working this text in you, I'm bringing you along. And that's really a better time in my word than just looking at it. How fast can I get through this and finish a gospel and move on to the next thing? Man, it's, I mean, that's really great. I, I feel, I, I get excited talking about the word of God because it's been a recent just excitement in my mm-hmm. life. And so it's fun to hear you talk about it too, Daniels. And I want to speak to the guy who maybe is maybe holding too tight a grip on the word of God, just to remind him mm-hmm. like, hey, Scripture is a method that we get we get to take deeper into the love of Jesus. Like it's meant to take us into deeper love of Christ and walk in his way. Yeah. It's not we're yeah. not meant to just fall in love with scripture reading and then become terrible people. It's meant to transform mm-hmm. us. So I want to remind remind those guys on that side of the camp that I've been there, um, that just man, I have to get scripture done, I get it done, and I'm not actually moving towards deeper love and life looking yeah. like Jesus. And then I'd say to the other guys who I know there's a lot of guys who probably don't regularly look at scripture or feel distant from it, feel disoriented by it. I would just say God welcomes you and loves you and has truth for your life that's life-giving and not restrictive or burdensome. Following him is he's light and he's and he's welcoming. And there's that's there's right. just I, I, I would just encourage you to like wrestle through the hard questions, really ring out the Bible for what it is and test it because it is true and good and will help us walk through life. Regardless yeah. of how people have mistreated it, it, it it's there for, for us to walk with Jesus. And it's going to be difficult, but worth it. You know, there's a template that I've used in the past that I, I come back to a little bit that might be helpful for the guy that's just going, you know, 
Um, I don't get it. I open up the pages of scripture and I get nothing every single time. And, and let me just say parenthetically to that, you know, each generation is growing up becoming less of a student of the Bible. And here's why, because we have so many options to have somebody else feed us. Uh, you can go to podcast, you can go on church on demand, you can listen to amazing preachers all over the country and get lots of good content just dumped into your life. But there's, it's different than you actually mining and digging the treasure out for yourself. And let me tell you, there's, there's three questions that we teach uh, our people that God's used in my life that are, you can use it on any text you're studying. And, 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 and you may not get a lot the first time you do it or the second time, but if you'll keep using these questions, they will help you mine God's word for its riches. First question is, what does this passage teach me about God? So you just, you just, you read a text, you read the parable of the Good Samaritan, you ask the question, what does it teach me about God? It teaches me about God's compassion, it teaches me that God has an expectation of his people, it teaches me that God is love, you know, that, what do I learn about God? Second question, what do I learn about people? Well, parable of the Good Samaritan teaches me that people are often distracted over uh, urgent things, over the important things. It teaches me that small acts of kindness can actually be big deals in God's eyes. It teaches me that you can be religious and actually not have the heart of God. You know, I mean, those are, wow, those are powerful lessons. And then the third question is, what should I do? So what does the text teach me about God? What does the text teach me about people? And therefore, what should I do? God, I've just read this text. You're teaching me about yourself, which is what the Bible is. You're teaching me about people, which is maybe telling me something about me. So in light of that, God, what should I do? And literally say, God, today, in the next 24 hours, what do you want me to do with this? And if people ask those three questions over and over of a text, uh, they begin to see things. God's going to use those three questions or questions like that to really help them look at the Bible in a different way. Yeah, guys, go get after it. We hope it's helpful. And, and as you seek the word and seek to uh, eat it and digest it, however weird that kind of sounds that we're hoping you're not ripping pages out of your Bible and just eating them. Don't, don't go there. That's like, that'd be a little wild. Well, I know there's another really like helpful thing you've shared with a lot of college guys. They walk away and they're like, man, this changed the way I see the world and gives me a total new lens. And it's around finances and stewardship. And a lot of college guys are like, man, I don't have any money. I don't know what to do with it. And should I even tithe? I don't know what to do. And you, I feel like always, Daniel's like at past core leadership retreats, talk about finances in a way that like refreshes men's view it actually shows them hey jesus is lord also in this area and you can actually follow him and learn from him so i don't know if there's some some spark notes version or just some like big takeaways or thoughts around finances for college guys yeah you know i taught my kids growing up i don't know how how successful i i've been because i think i think my kids still wrestle with finances so i think it's an ongoing battle for all of us but i used to teach my kids make as much money as you possibly can and then give away as much as you possibly can. I don't think it's wrong for, for God to put Christians in, in positions where they make six figures. Praise the Lord for that. I think a lot of great work is going on around the world because there are people who can resource great work going on around the world. So I don't think we ever should be concerned or, or you know, uh, feel guilty or whatever that we make good money. I, by the way, I believe God puts all the money in our pockets that he expects us to steward. So... 
if you make a six-figure income, you have a weightier responsibility to manage six figures than the person who makes $42,000 a year. You just have that responsibility. I think what happens to a college student is they, they get out of college after four years, or for some of you that are doing victory laps, five or six years, they, uh, they get out of college and suddenly they have more money than they've ever had in their life on an annual basis. And for most students, it will be money than they need. There probably aren't going to be many students graduating that are only making $18,000 a year. Most, most students will have more money than they need. And I think the challenge is for us as men of God to view all of our resources under the principle of ownership. We don't own it. It's God's. He's simply given it to us on loan. So we are managing God's money. Think about that. Managing God's money. And that's why we're called stewards. That's why it's called stewardship. A steward is a manager. So let me tell you a little story. I was attending a generosity conference this last weekend that was amazing, amazing video testimonies of Bill and Bonnet Bright with crew and other people that have had incredible stories of, of great generosity. And at the end of this conference, I get a text. And it's my daughter who had been out of town that weekend and she said, Daddy, there was a wrong charge on my credit card. Somebody has used my credit card number. What should I do? And I said, well, you should contact the bank and you should tell them there's a, there's a charge that you didn't put on the card, that somebody has illegitimately used your account for themselves. And she said, okay. And as I kind of for the next 15 minutes, kind of texting back and forth, helping her kind of manage that, God used that illustration and asked me the question, David, have you fraudulently been using my resources? Okay, I, I, I have an account. And have you made any purchases that would be viewed as fraudulent purchases on God's account? And I don't know if that makes sense to guys, but, but, it, but it just caused me to remember every purchase I make in my life, whether it's my house or my car or my food or going out to eat with my wife, every one of those purchases are being made on God's account. It feels like my money, but it's not. It's God's money. And I need to make those purchases in a way that God would affirm those purchases. And I, you know, to be honest with you, most of the purchases we make during the day, getting gas, getting lunch, that sort of thing, we don't think about. But I suspect a better view of ownership and stewardship is that we would be more mindful of those of those purchases and we would seek to honor the Lord with our daily spending and then even beyond that with the kinds of contributions, the kind of generosity we express to God's kingdom purposes in our church and parachurch organizations with missionaries and that sort of thing. So that's kind of the broad picture. Is there one or two things you would tell guys to start doing now to practice being a steward or one to two things to keep in mind as they, yeah. grow, as they grow in stewardship, as they maybe find themselves with money now, more money later, or any season yeah. of life? Yeah, I would say start tithing right now. Now, when I use the word tithe, I use it in a generic sense as to just give to God's kingdom purposes. Doesn't have to be 10%. I don't think the Old Testament command of 10%, which by the way, it wasn't 10% in the Old Testament, it was about 23%. So if you want to be an Old Testament Christian, just go for it. Get ready. Um, yeah. Be ready for that, <laughs> that yeah, percentage right. increase in your budget. Yeah. 
I think, you know, I, I learned to tithe. Uh, I, had, I had great spiritual mentors around me that kind of pushed me to tithe. And, uh, you know, you can only tithe on what you receive. So if you receive a little, then you tithe on the little you receive. If you've got a job in college that allows you to make a reasonable income, then you tithe on that. I think we can start practicing generosity and the regular rhythm of giving as college students. And um, even if it means you're given $5 a week, Okay, that's fine. Now, some people would say, Pastor, how much should I give? Should it be 10%? Should it be 8%? Should it be, you know, gross income, net income? I think those are all the wrong questions. I think the good test of my tithe is two things. Number one, is the amount that I'm giving causing me to walk by faith? Is the amount that I'm giving causing me to walk by faith? So let me tell you, as my wife and I went to this generosity conference, we have an amount that we give that, you know, comes up to a percentage of my income. I realized <clears throat> even though that amount might be more than the average person gives a percentage of their income, we've been doing it for so long that it's easy. It's so easy. And the Lord convicted me, you're no longer having to walk by faith. You might be giving twice as much in percentage than the average Christian, but it's, it requires no faith. So I want you to give more because, and here's why, not because I need your money, because God can accomplish all of his purposes without one red cent from me, but because he wants faith from me. And so we committed that we're going to give a significant amount more each year moving forward, simply because that amount now causes us to walk by faith. That's the first principle. The second principle comes from C.S. Lewis, and I love this. He says, the measure of our generosity should be such that there are some things that we would like to do but are unable to do because our level of generosity prevents it. Think, think about that. Yeah. What are the things that you cannot do because your level of generosity prevents you from doing those things? Most Christians would go, well, nothing. I still get to do all the things I want to do. I go on all the vacations. I buy all the cars. I have all the food. I go out to eat. I do. My giving doesn't require me to make any change in my living. I'd say, or C.S. Lewis would say, then you need to figure out, then you don't yet understand generosity. You're giving out of your surplus, but you're not giving in a way that's truly generous. That's an awesome word. That's great. I haven't heard that, actually. I don't feel like I've heard you talk about finance a few times, and that feels like a, a new quote thrown in there for me, Daniel. So that's it's kind, of, it's kind of sobering, isn't it? Yeah, it's kind of tough to take in. <laughs> uh, I will say, too, for me, yeah, being just being married and Tasha and I had to, you know, come together as a team, my wife and I, and say, we want to be people who believe using our money can be an act of love. And we want to believe God isn't yeah. scarce and he's not withholding. He's going to be generous and provide. He's in a God of abundance. And so how can we mimic that and be people of generosity and abundance and give? And so that what we've, we've even put up aside, you know, a blessing fund where we don't have to stop and ask one another, Hey, this person needs groceries bought for him. It's like, Hey, we have some margin in our budget and our money where we're going to when there's a need, we're going to step up and say, hey, we'll pay for this. Basically. We'll buy this. We'll do that. And I think it's it's challenging, right? It's challenging to look and say, man, we could maybe lower this, but we are asking, 
hey, how can we not just reach 10% and be done? How can we keep growing in that? That's where we're headed and trying to be. And this is coming from a guy who, you know, grew up on food stamps, went to college and had to pay for yeah, myself. Yeah. Like good money's always been need-based. So I'm pulling back my own biases and difficulties with it to say, okay, how can I let go of my grip here? Not even realizing I had that tight grip on it. Yeah. I read a book uh, years and years ago by Bruce Wilkinson uh, called You Were Born for This. And in this book, Wilkinson talks about starting his day off. I think he did this once a week, but he says, starting your day off with a $20 bill in your pocket. And you're asking the question, Lord, who is this for? And you spend your entire day or you spend your entire week trying to find the person that the $20 is for. Now think about that. That that it, it, What it does is it begins to train us with a different mindset that what I have is intended to be used for God's purposes. And God, I'm actually going to open my eyes to the needs around my world. Now, it may just be buying lunch for somebody in line and they don't look poor, but you just, God just tells you, bless that person. You go, I'm, I'm just going to do it. I'm going to bless that person. It might be a gift of encouragement for a friend. And, but, but you started off with the intention that I'm not going to get to the end of the week and still hold on to this $20. I'm going to spend it in a way that would bless somebody else and would magnify, would magnify the Lord. Yeah. And I had a financial advisor guy tell me, I said, am, am I giving enough for this? He's like, Gabe, honestly, the people I work with, we don't talk much about giving. And so have good habits now will lead to good habits later. What you're doing now is good. Yeah. And, and what you do now yeah. will carry into when you make more or less money. And so I would say that to guys like, Hey, like you said, I think we're not just going to arrive at some point in our lives and us suddenly become disciplined or suddenly become generous. We have to practice generosity now so that it becomes a flexed muscle and something we're used to doing. That's right. I mean, here's what typically happens. A guy graduates from college and he gets a job and he's making $65,000 a year. Let's just throw that out there as a number. He's making $65,000 and he, he puts his giving, you know, let's say he and his wife decide to give and they give 5%. And then the next year they get a raise and the next year they get a raise and the next year they get a raise. And at some point in five years, he's making $80,000. Now there was a time in his life where he and his wife knew how to live on $65,000 and give 5%. But what's happened is that over the years, their standard of living has risen to meet their income. In fact, do you know, statistically, it is harder for somebody making $100,000 to give 10% than it is for a person making $30,000 to give 10%. More wow. frequently, people who make below the poverty line give more generously than people who make $100,000, $150,000. And you'd think, well, $150,000, how much money does a person need to live? I mean, shouldn't there be a point at which God's people say, my standard of living, and I'm just making these numbers up, my standard of living is $70,000. I now make $100,000. So I'm going to give away $30,000. Now I make $150,000. So I'm going to give away $80,000. I mean, think about that. We don't, we don't think about it that way. What we do is we allow our standard of living to continue to inch up with the income that we make, as opposed to having a reasonable standard of living and giving far above and beyond that. 
And I hope guys here, we're not so, don't become married to the numbers, but listen to the principles and that's right. Uh, become a man surrendered in your heart and your finances to Jesus. Don't, don't start your spiritual life with Jesus and say, you know what, I'm going to get finance advice from somewhere else to do it this way. Like now Jesus has lordship and direction for us in that area and all other areas. I agree. Let me tell you one challenge that everybody could do. Whatever your standard of giving is right now, if you're not giving anything, Ask the Lord, God, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to trust you? And maybe that for you, that's 2% or 10% or 8%. Or Lord, help me to trust you and do it. Then think about it this way. Every year, okay, say, Lord, at minimum, every year, I'm going to give a half percent more. Think about that. So if I give 8% this year, next year, I'll probably get a raise. I'm going to look at my salary. I'm going to re re recalculate. I'm now going to give eight and a half percent. The next year after that, I'm going to get a raise, recalculate my income. I'm now going to give 9%. Now think about that. In 10 years, the average person could have increased whatever their level of giving, 5%. That's, that's pretty significant. If you're a 10%er right now, and in 10 years, you're giving 15%, that's amazing. Imagine this. Imagine in 20 years, you're giving 20%. I mean, think about it in that way. That I mean, you start to get numbers that most Christians just never even think about. And you did it by just incrementally, just little by little, moving up and, and testing, pushing your level of generosity. I love it. Well, let me hit you with a couple of final questions, Daniels. One is, what are ways you're currently just having fun or decompressing in your life, whether that's sports, hobbies, uh, walks? Well, I'm fortunate to have married the most unbelievable bride in the world. Uh, sorry, sorry that you have to hear that, Gabe, but that is the truth. My wife and I have a blast. She is fun. She is spiritual, and we love being together. So going out to eat, we take walks every day. Just being together with one another is a lot of fun for me. I'm also fortunate to have one of our kids nearby, my oldest son, and his wife live in Fort Worth, and they have a granddaughter about to have a grandson come early May. And hey, congrats! Uh, that's huge. Yeah, man. We're uh, when your when your kids start making other human beings, that's that's pretty amazing. So uh, so we love that, and we spend a great deal of time with our kids and grandkids. Uh, I read. I love to read. I run. So when the weather's a little bit better, I'm a runner. And so I enjoy that. I play golf. I'm terrible, but I do enjoy playing the game. So it, it keeps me, keeps me clinging to Jesus. So yeah, good, good. It reminds you where your identity is. It's a good thing. We're not putting yeah, it in golf. Right. You are, I have to remind myself, you are not your score. You are not your score. <laughs> what would you be doing if you weren't a pastor of your local church? You know, I really think I would I would be back in the in the design field. I'd be designing corporate branding and and brochures and that sort of thing. I recognize there's still a part of me that itches for that and loves the creative communication, visual communication. So, although I realize it passed me a long time ago and I don't have, you know, I'm not with the time so to speak. So, I would do that. I think if I got totally outside of that, I would probably be a carpenter. I would love finish out woodworking. That would be a desire. That's good. Maybe final one. What would you go back and tell your 20-year-old self or on top of that, kind of any final words for a college guy right now that you're thinking of as we're closing out? 
I think we've already touched on this today, but I, I would tell my 20-year-old self that my time in college is setting the pace for the rest of life. So much of what happens in those four or five years, it's setting a foundation of community and accountability and discipline and love for God's word and mission and all of those things. That was a powerful, powerful time. And I was fortunate to be connected with some organizations and churches and mentors where I really got a lot. I think I could have gotten even more out of it. And I think a lot of times we think is we think, well, here's what I got to do. I just got to get this degree done and have a few friends. And then when I get out, boy, then I'll start the machine. I'll, I'll crank up the engine and get things going. And I don't think many guys do that well. So I would say really exploit that time in college and even the first year out of college of setting some great habits and relationships. And those will carry with you for a lifetime. Well, David Daniels, you're an incredible leader. I hope you hear that and know that. I hope, I don't think you know how many guys you've impacted from core who say, hey, uh, my world's changed just a little bit. So look at it with a Jesus lens a little bit, whether that's in finances, whether that's in ways I spend time in the word, whether that's how I make decisions. I know guys have walked away from in-person and I pray the same. They're going to walk away from listening to you talk on this podcast and be, just be changed that we're not just taking in this information. We're actually being changed by and get the spirit's going to use it to build his kingdom in us and in his world. Thanks, man. It, I, what a privilege. What a privilege and what an honor to be with my brothers and to spend a little time together. And I'm always available. If ever I can encourage a local chapter or any personal guy, man, they can always contact me. Let's let's figure the spiritual life out together. And I appreciate you, man. You're such a friend. Yeah. Well, guys, don't be scared of your local pastor. As you see, Daniels is, is a good man. And hopefully your, your other local pastors are can match up next to him. And if not, get to know them anyway. <laughs> um and yeah, thank y'all for joining. We had no storm interrupt us. We had uh, technically went pretty great in our te technology. And so thank y'all for listening. This is David Daniels, um, head pastor. Thanks for sharing your life. And we'll see y'all next time on the Core Leadership Podcast. Hey, everybody. Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of the Core Leadership Podcast. I want to take this last moment, as always, to talk about Bucks and who we are. We are a lifelong brotherhood of committed Christian men seeking the bonds of brotherhood and unity in Christ through the avenue of a social fraternity on a college campus. Our founding verse is Psalm 133.1, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. To find out more about Bucks, information on joining, founding a chapter on your campus, or donate, go to byx.org. Keep up with us on social media at Beta Upsilon Chi on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Once more, thanks again for tuning in, and we'll see you again in two weeks.